Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, we look back, present, future. More than a year ago, Governor Brian Kemp ran his first campaign ad seeking re-election. Here's my commitment. Secure, accessible, and fair elections will always remain the foundation of who we are as a state. And I'm not backing down from this fight. Now, that was back in July of 2021. Then on December 1st of last year. Our values are still strong. No matter where we come from in Georgia or how long we've been here, we believe in this place and our people. And so here we are, now just weeks away, the rematch between incumbent Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Plus, once again, Georgia is a key state as to which major political party will hold the advantage in the U.S. Senate. Also, the campaign ads for Senator Raphael Warnock and challenger Herschel Walker are being ramped up and each attacking the other's moral compass. We'll have more about that as well. So in this hour, we team up with our campaign strategists as they weigh in on how candidates are making the final push to win over voters. Plus... Whatever you have or whatever connections you may have or whatever resource you may have, you try to put that into the students to, to help them succeed in school. It involves removing all boundaries or all barriers they may have uh, that may stop them from being successful. An in-house documentary from Communities and Schools highlights their mission, which is to, to surround students with what they call a community of support to empower them to stay in school. And also now there's a major focus with the organization because they're helping students with learning loss due to the pandemic stay on the academic track. All that's coming up on today's show. But first this, Georgia health officials say new type of fentanyl, the high-powered synthetic opioid, is especially dangerous for teenagers. Overdose deaths among young people are dramatically up here over the last few years. Law enforcement officials say they've seized candy-colored pills and powder called rainbow fentanyl in at least 18 states. And yes, that includes Georgia. Amy Benson heads the State Department of Public Health Opioid Response Program, and she says even trace amounts can be deadly. It's hidden in street drugs. It cannot be detected by smell, sight, or taste. And it is often made to look like prescription drugs, making it very difficult to determine if it's legitimate or fake. Benson urges anyone at risk of contact with fentanyl to learn overdose prevention techniques. In other news, workers at some Atlanta-era Amazon fulfillment centers say they'll continue to demonstrate today calling for safer working conditions and higher wages, as we hear from Emily Wu Pearson. Some warehouse employees at the Buford and Stone Mountain Amazon fulfillment centers say they continue to walk off the job during what is supposed to be one of the online retailer's busier weeks. Workers also walked out Tuesday morning at the Stone Mountain location to demand higher wages. This will be their fourth protest in a little over a month, 
In September, the Stone Mountain location called for safer working conditions when workers say employees passed out from the heat. Stone Mountain employees said they received nominal raises recently, but are asking for the minimum wage to be $24 an hour. An Amazon spokesperson said in an email the company values employee feedback and that Amazon plans to invest $1 billion over the next year to permanently raise hourly pay. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And we should note this is part of a series of national walkouts at Amazon fulfillment centers across the country as the company launches its Prime Week sale. And we should note this, a WABE reporter was at the third demonstration yesterday evening, but was actually escorted off the property by Amazon security. The company has not returned requests for comments about that. In other news, Atlanta's Morris Brown College has partnered with Georgia's technical colleges to make it easier for students to transfer and complete undergraduate degrees, as we hear from Martha Dalton. The agreement between Morris Brown and the technical college system focuses on two different degree programs. Graduates of a technical school can transfer as juniors to Morris Brown if they want to pursue bachelor's degrees in organizational management and leadership or hospitality management. The two programs are new to Morris Brown, which recently regained accreditation after two decades without it. That status has allowed the school to receive federal financial aid, which helped boost enrollment. College President Kevin James has made hospitality and service programs a main focus of the school, even partnering with private companies to eventually build a hotel and hospitality training center on campus. Martha Dalton, WABE News. Clayton County is facing a lawsuit for an alleged racial profiling program by police at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. Comedians Eric Andre and Clayton English say they were stopped and questioned about potential drug possession on jet bridges between 2020 and 2021. Their legal team says it's part of a systemic targeting of people of color while onboarding bridges. Here's attorney Richard Dean. We, too, believe that these stops were unconstitutional. We believe they were illegal, and we believe that they were based largely, if not solely, on race. Clayton County's police department told WABE it did not have such a program. Meanwhile, Clayton County's district attorney did not return calls for comment. And finally, oh, so close. Two and two. Olsen trying to get the tying run to the plate. Ball center field sends Marsh back onto the track. Well, actually it was. But game one, the National League Division Series goes to the Philadelphia Phillies. Boo. By a score of 7-6 in Tuesday's series opener. Braves will be trying again today. Go Braves. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
And a closer look will continue in just a moment, but this just into us. The Reverend Charles Melvin Sherrod, whose grassroots organizing of unregistered black voters, what they say sent shockwaves through the segregated South and kick-started the Albany movement, has died. He was 85 years old. Sherrod, whose death was confirmed by his family, died of natural causes at his home in Albany yesterday at 345. Quote, he was a great husband, a great father, and great servant to his community, said his wife of 56 years, Shirley Miller Sherrod. His life serves as a shining example of service to one's fellow man. Close quote. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Perhaps you've heard of the organization, but not quite sure what exactly communities and schools is all about. When I was teaching, I used to be a, a classroom teacher. And I was told by my assistant principal, people with good hearts usually don't last that long in education because you have, to, you have to want to help every single person that you come in contact with. But there are going to be some situations where you just can't, just can't do anything about it. That's something that really stuck with me. You know, every day I'm coming in trying to plant seeds, and I don't know when they're going to grow. You know, I have to keep pushing. That's Daryl Smith, and he's featured in The Push. It's a documentary short produced by Communities and Schools. It features the story of Daryl and Jamez, a senior at Stone Mountain High School. Now, Jamez wasn't sure he would graduate with his high school class of 2022 until he meets the CIS of Atlanta site coordinator, Daryl Smith, who you just heard. Now, Communities and Schools uses what the organization cites as a, quote, an evidence-based model that connects students to caring adults and community resources. Now, the last two years, because of the pandemic, well, CIS Atlanta, along with so many other organizations and school districts, they've been helping students with what's referred to as learning loss. And there's a lot more to discuss as we welcome CEO of Communities and Schools of Atlanta, Frank Brown. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I remember when they first made the announcement some years ago that you were going to be the CEO here, and I interviewed you then. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And you so came back. I'm happy I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so, eight years later, I have a, a story to tell you. So first of all, on behalf of my board and my, my staff, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity. Let's talk about what Daryl said in that clip. You know, you want to help everyone. Right. Sometimes you may not reach them all. Right. And I have never met an educator that didn't want to help students. When you think about what educators are challenged with, particularly with students who are also coming from some challenges themselves, mm-hmm. you know, you reflect on that, uh, the importance of organizations like communities and schools and what you're all able to do. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's our 50th year anniversary, so very few organizations can say they were have been around for 50 years. And what we started here in Atlanta in 1972 is now spread nationally. CIS is a national organization Mm -hmm. that operates in 26 states, including the District of Columbia. And collectively, me and my colleagues serve about 1.6 million kids, whether they're in Chicago, Atlanta, or West Virginia, we're serving them. So, uh, and it's very simple. Our mission is to surround kids with a community of support, empower them to stay in school and achieve in life. And Daryl Smith is the embodiment of that Mm -hmm. mission. Uh, we place loving adults. We're in 63 schools in the metro Atlanta area. We're in 20-some-odd schools in APS, 19 schools in Clayton County, 19 schools in Fulton County, 5 in DeKalb. We also now are providing supports to over 200 of our alumni 
students who are located in colleges and universities mm-hmm. all over the country. We believe we're a national organization now with that type of work because when they were here, they needed help. Imagine going to the University of Georgia like Devontae Wyatt did mm-hmm. with a scholarship but still had the challenges that he had. I spoke with Achieve Atlanta yesterday about the work that they do and their CEO, uh, Tina Fernandez. And look, it's about students needing help beyond the four walls. Yeah. And often we talk about wraparound services. Right that students need for listeners not familiar with just what those resources might look like i I mean for paint the picture for them i mean one we're we're in 63 schools but most of them are low performing schools Uh, the state has a state score a ccrpi is what it's called it's the college and career readiness performance index it's a score scott score card for each school that we serve and you can look at that and see and determine as a parent whether it's a school that you would want to send your kids. Mm -hmm. Most of the schools that we serve are in low income areas. These are not bad schools, bad teachers. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. It's the poverty. It's the lack of opportunity. It's the health issues that these communities are challenged with when Mm -hmm. you see uh, Wellstar closed Atlanta Medical Center right here and is there's very few uh, trauma uh, hospitals for our people to go if they get hurt mm-hmm. or something seriously harmful happens to them. So when you deal with that, and then you look at the economics, for example, in APS, the average median income for a black family is twenty three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. For a white family, it's one hundred and sixty seven thousand. That's in Atlanta, and that is a proven that that data has been proven. Yes. I've talked to an educator. You know, who has done the research on that. People may not believe that, but give them those numbers again. I mean, median income for black families in Atlanta public schools is about $23,000, and the median income for white families in Atlanta public schools is about 167000 That's in Atlanta, a place that has had you know African-American mayors for 40 years, a place that has had city council members who are people of color. But, you know, Atlanta led the country in income inequality before COVID. So what we're seeing is what we were seeing before. Uh, During COVID from March 2020 to March 2021, my organization, me and my colleagues, gave out over $600,000 in emergency assistance. Mm-hmm. We got a grant from BET. They did the COVID um, a telethon a couple of years ago. We mm-hmm. got it through United Way. And we, and 70-something percent of that money went to housing in the midst of a pandemic. You brought up housing, and I'm glad you did, because I think often, and I think it's been more highlighted probably since the pandemic, but as it relates to housing, because for those households, those students who are in households where Perhaps the family has to move right. due to whatever. And in housing, when right. we talk here in Atlanta, that right. could be a number of things. That could be due to rising tax, right. property taxes, that rent, right. facing eviction. Right. There's a whole lot tied. Do you think the people who make the policies when it comes to education, particularly in public schools, mm-hmm. understand that when there are these other quality of life tentacles that have to be addressed, whether it's health and wellness, transit, housing, workforce development. I say all that because that's what we try to focus on here, because it's all connected. It is. And a student's aptitude for learning is greatly impacted by all those other tentacles I just mentioned. Yeah, well, poverty has a direct effect on the development of the brain. Studies show that. I mean, I think one thing I'm hopeful for is the mayor. To see uh, Mayor Dickens and and, and Superintendent Herring, who's a great friend of mine and and leading APS, come together on that early childhood youth uh, uh, initiative around reading, uh, working with Blythe over at uh, Sheltering Arms, another great leader in the city. Uh, That gives me hope that that we do have leaders now who are really understanding that it's bigger than just APS educating. Mm -hmm. It's the development. It's the workforce development. It's the, the, the community development investing in in the community that that we're really focused on too. 
This evidence-based model that you all say it is in terms of connecting students with community resources, mm -hmm. let's go over some of those, Frank. What's you, one that's, I'm, I'm sure they're all critical, right? but what's at the top there? Does it begin with putting a CSI coordinator in the schools? It, I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, I will say that. Uh, but it's evidence-based, and I can tell you last year we had 2,500 kids in 61 schools on our caseload. 96% of those kids did one of two things. They either graduated high school on time mm -hmm. or they earned promotion to the next grade. 99% of those same kids stayed in schools. These were kids who were identified at the beginning of the year. We get 50 of the most at-risk kids in each of these schools. Let me stop you there. Okay. When you say at-risk, mm -hmm. is this solely based on grades? grades is it behavior is it other metrics All, that are a 360 approach that's data driven so it's okay. their attendance it's their core curriculum performance it's their behaviors have they been suspended from school or put an in-school suspension so the principal gives us this list and we don't go in and cherry pick kids we get these are the kids in our case are the ones who are most at risk of dropping out mm -hmm. and to see that we can get 96 percent of those kids and so that improves the climate of the whole school if you mm -hmm. get the lowest performing to perform the rest of the school benefits because you have kids who are all engaged in learning, regardless if it's a low-performing school or not. I mean, that doesn't stop learning. Uh, a state classification should not stop our kids from learning. And so for us, that loving adult just doesn't come in there. He, he They do three levels of service, so whole school. So if we bring an anti-bullying campaign through a, a vision truck with vision vouchers, the mm -hmm. whole school could participate. The second tier of service is a group model where we could bring 10 to 15 kids together, uh, whether it's cessation of smoking, gang uh, violence, prevention, anything around that, we can work with 10 to 15 kids. And then our, our Cadillac service is our case managed service. Mm -hmm. On that last year, kids from K to 12th grade on our caseload got over $213,000 in emergency. $213,000 in emergency assistance. 70% mm -hmm. of that went to housing. We also get to, to the household, to, to the parents. The, no, for housing. So we, we have a policy if a parent becomes homeless on our caseload, we will put them up for four to six weeks mm -hmm. and work to get them connected with a United Way, mm -hmm. with the city of Atlanta when it comes to rent assistance, to get them in a permanent situation. Most organizations don't take that on, but we, we really, most of our kids are very transient. There's a 60% mm -hmm. chance that the kid starts in one school in August and is in another school by December, March, mm -hmm. and might be in another school by June. So this is all around housing and income insecurity. And so for us, we believe that all of our students must be full participants in the American dream. We must set them up to go to college to graduate without debt or technical school or the military. And if they, even if they got an entrepreneurial skill set, they mm -hmm. can cut hair, they're cosmopolitan. Get them in a situation where they can show that skill set to the world. That's the new um, iteration of our work for the next 50 years. Your coordinators that are in the schools, Frank, are they mostly former educators or current educators? Social workers, educators, ex-teachers. Uh, it, it, I just want to say something about my team and the, the people we put in the schools, not just the site coordinators. It's also the program managers mm -hmm. because I give a lot of credit to the people who are on the ground, but their support that is needed for them, whether it's connecting them with a partner, helping them put on an event. So our most valuable assets are not just our site coordinators, but our program managers who have to, five to six people trying to manage 60 some odd people in four school districts is a lot. So without them, there's no need for me. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, are you all um, in schools or there where English is a second language? 
Well, we have a big presence that's cross keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our kind of flagship. We have. Let me just step back for a minute. We have introduced a new program at CIS of Atlanta called Latinx, and it's a program that is geared towards. That community is so diverse. Mm-hmm. You can't be monolithic in how sure. you deal with those kids. So we have a program that's geared towards where they are, and that's some, most of them are undocumented. They still have dreams to go to college. So we have a program that helps them find resources despite their status. The students or the? The students and the families. Okay. So we have a, a program, and it's also um, culturally sensitive. So it's, it's, it's their people. We have a, a Latinx coordinator who, who, who comes in and does it. We're taking data off of it so we can go out and show the world and raise funds to expand it. We're probably mm-hmm. in two or three schools now with it. We want to expand it because for the first time in my tenure, uh, 7% of our caseload is Latinx. That's never been the case. Wow, that's a that's, uh, that's a, a huge for that's you a all. huge thing for us. The voice you hear is Frank Brown. He's the CEO of Communities and Schools of Atlanta. We're talking about their mission and also two years ago, 2020. No one knew this, but this thing called a pandemic <laughs> came to right. okay, it hit the entire world. Right. What have you all had to? You all have had to shift, obviously, and put right. in some resources. Did you just have to ramp up the resources you were already providing, or did you see a, a, a unique? Right set of circumstances here i mean honestly and i and i know this sounds crazy but see i i mean uh, the pandemic was the best thing that happened for our work as far as the eyes and people ability to see and connect what we do with what was going on mm-hmm. uh, from a fundraising standpoint we raised more money than we've ever raised in our 50-year history during the pandemic because those partners whether it was Roar capital coming in neil aronson and that great how much did y'all raise uh the six hundred thousand from from BET, we went from a $6 million operation to an $8 million operation over those two years. Nationally or just here in Atlanta? Here in Atlanta. Just in Atlanta? Here in Atlanta. So when I walked in the door at CIS, I had a $1.3 million budget and 18 employees. Eight years later, we have almost a $10 million budget and almost 100 employees. Who are your partners, Frank? Uh, Roar Capital is a big partner of ours, private equity firm here located here in Atlanta. Uh, they own everything from Sonic to Arby's to <laughs> to Moe's. Uh, but they give us about $400,000 for our work at Thero, Kimberly & Bunch, and mm-hmm. APS. So shout out to Neil and shout out to Allison. And, and Sarah Spiegel is the vice chair of our board. They also put their managing director. And I want to thank my board. I want to stop, Rose, because I can't stop but saying all this work is predicated by a great board. So Inglacius Hollins is our chair from Coca-Cola. Sarah Spiegel is our vice chair um, from uh, Roar Capital. And we just added the Braves. We just added um, Aston Martin, North America. Well, let me ask you this, because I, I always had this question about boards, and that mm-hmm. includes, you know, we have a board here. But, you know, the work of the board, are they also out there making sure that, that you all are getting all those extra resources oh, that absolutely. you need? Absolutely. I mean, I, I have. Because Coca-Cola got a lot of money. Man. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I've been I mean, seeing the Coca-Cola in Santa right. Claus since I was little. So well, they, well, they got a little little change well, over there. Well, Coca-Cola is actually the presenting sponsor for our uh, dinner. We have our 2023 Choose Success Awards dinner in March. We'd love to have you there broadcasting live. We're actually. I'm going to order uh, a Pepsi. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. My boy here get me fired. But please don't do that. Uh, but we'll be honoring Kim Godwin who's the president of ABC News. Uh, she's the first African-American woman to ever lead a, a major news organization in America. Mm-hmm. And her husband is uh, Derek Manning, who's the principal over at Forest Park High School. So we're actually about to take some kids up to New York, go to The View, Major League Baseball. The View? Yes. What are you to The View for? Bring them here. Yes. We're going to bring them here too. But This, but, but this she's, is real news. Yes. No offense, Whoopi and the rest of everybody uh, else. <laughs> take them to The View. 
You get a bus and come right down the street to I will WABE. Take you up I will take you up on that offer. Next time I come, I'll bring some babies with me, and they can tell you for themselves what we do. So I have no problem with that. Um, when we talk about what this nation will look like in you know, five, ten years, we know that the demographics are, are, are shifting and, right. and changing. As they say, we're going to talk about politics in just a moment after this segment. What concerns you? What does, and I know this is such a cliche question, so forgive me as a journalist, what does keep you up at night when you think about the future of public education as it relates to students who look like us? Right. I, I think Came from me, our communities? I, 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 that's a great question, Rose. I think for me, it's what keeps me up at night. I think for me, the lack of outrage over the learning loss. Uh, you know, we see learning, the national assessment came out that said nine-year-olds slipped seven points in math, five points in reading. Is it a lack of outrage because perhaps folks didn't know how just how serious it was? I, I, I or mean, I mean, because is that fair to say? I mean, I, I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and AJC, and these articles have been nonstop about the the negative right. impact that, that that virtual learning had on low income kids. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, so for us, we're seeing it whether it's the behaviors. You, so you're saying the lack of outrage from folks within the system that can do something about it? Is that what you're saying? I'm just talking about the community in general. Okay. I think when we when when you look at the the, the state of the plight of, of education for kids of color here in the metro area, there leaves a lot to be desired whether it's the school they go to, the community they live in, or the lack of options. You know, there's a 4%. Kids who are born in poor communities here in Atlanta have a 4% chance I know the of getting out. And that's there should be outrage about that. So for us, we're not just going to be outraged. We're going to do something. And it shows up when we have a Devontae Wyatt, a kid who was on our caseload since ninth grade at Towers, who gets mm-hmm. a scholarship to Georgia, who didn't qualify academically, who had to go to junior college and finally got to Georgia, mm-hmm. won a national championship, got drafted in the first round of the mm-hmm. NFL, and now will be putting CIS of Atlanta on his cleats on Sunday mm-hmm. when they do the cleats for cause. So for me, that gives me hope. When I see uh, Ariana Hollister, who was homeless when we took her to the, the White House a couple of years ago, she get, goes to Howard. We help her get through Howard. She gets a job at Accenture. Now she's at Deloitte. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's the American dream that we're chasing for our babies. And you recognize that it's their stories, their personal testimonies, which will probably inspire other kids. How often do, I guess you could say, alumnus of CIS come back and talk to kids? I'm, all the, That's a requirement to be a part of our alumni program. Not just take, but you got to give. So during COVID, for example, all the athletes came back and hosted food drives at their high schools, whether mm-hmm. it was Devontae at Towers, whether it was Justin, who's at Alabama over at Forest Park. Not only that, we do these Zooms where we get the community together where they can hear peer-to-peer conversations about the challenges they're facing from wherever they are, whatever university they are. So mm-hmm. for us, they have been integral and we're about to add one on our board sooner or later in the next year or two, probably, too. So for us, the financial support, they come back, they help us raise money, and they volunteer. Is there anything, Frank, as we wrap up, that you all want to do or want to do bigger and better, but maybe right now you can't right. or you just need more resources, well, partners in that area? Right. Well, my dream is to have a 1,000 kids we're man- case managing all over the country who are in college or at technical schools all over the country. My dream is to expand our our partnership with MAC around our our, our serving foster care kids to expand it to all over the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dream is to make our Latinx program second to none and first in class in the entire network so people can come here and learn from us and spread that. And ultimately, my dream is to have the best board and the best staff and the Mm -hmm. best team. I want to shout out my senior team who are around me, my my CFO, my, my chief development officer, my chief programmer. All of these people help me 
do this great work. So I want to thank them from the bottom of my heart. Well, why are you shouting out all those folks? Let me ask you this. Why do you do this work? Um, God, I feel like, you know, since I, I had some unique experience, I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked in New York. I think God has placed me at the right time to help take this organization to the next level and change the plight for poor black and brown kids in the city. Frank Brown, the CEO of Communities and Schools of Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time coming in and sharing what you all are doing. And thank you for helping so many kids. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. Are you getting excited? Allegedly, that's election night music. Well, at least according to producer Daniel Razel, because he picked that out. But I promise you, we'll have different election night music the night of November 8th. That will be WABE's election night coverage. Closer look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Shameless plug. Join me, Dennis O'Hara, Jim Burris, and the entire WABE politics team and other guests. That's November 8th, starting with our pre-election election special hosted by Jim Burris. Well, speaking of election, a new election poll is out. Again, with the polls, this time from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Georgia News Collaborative. Just in time, also with a new slew of campaign ads that are rolling out. How important is Georgia this midterm election? Well, here's a headline from NBCNews.com. Quote, ads targeting Georgia's Senate candidates hit the airwaves. Dueling super PACs launched ads on Tuesday, taking aim at Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. And from the New York Times... Groups saturate TV with negative ads about Warnock and Walker. As for those new ads, eh, take a listen. Herschel Walker facing devastating abuse accusations from his own son. Saying he has committed atrocities against him and his mother. He threatened to kill us and had us move six times in six months. But I've tried to keep the way that he acts under wraps for a long time. And today he crossed the line. So that is what is going on here. And he's a great actor. He is phenomenal. And that last portion is an ad aimed at Raphael Warnock. Of course, earlier you heard the ad aimed at Herschel Walker. Of course, at stake in their race, which party would be tops in the U.S. Senate? Meanwhile, there's the rematch between Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic Stacey Abrams. So what to expect before November 8th as candidates are making the final push to win over voters? Well, let's talk it all out with our regular contributors, campaign strategist Julianne Thompson, Republican strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies, Fred Hicks, an Atlanta-based political strategist and demographer, which is just a fancy word for a dude that likes data, Related to population growth. They are rock stars. Welcome back, you two. Thank you. Thank you. Rock stars. That's all you, you just, are y'all excited? You seem a little subdued there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's before the first song, so we're getting hyped up. All right. Julianne, let me st- start with you because when you think about uh, the midterms from a national perspective, control of the Senate obviously is is at stake and the House, some say, could be in jeopardy of flipping to the Republicans. What what do you notice so far in terms of strategy from the Republicans here leading up to November 8th? Well, I think that the most important thing that Republicans can do leading up to to November 8th is to not be sidetracked by any October surprises or anything that is uh, 
that is trying to sway the news in various directions other than sticking to the basic kitchen table issues that are front and center on the minds of the American people these days. Um, and there are issues that Biden and the Democrats are losing on. So those are the issues that Republicans need to focus on, being the economy, inflation, crime, and the border crisis. So you say inflation, crime, the border crisis, you want, you feel Republicans should focus on that, not get sidetracked by anything. Economy first, yes. Economy, inflation, crime, and the border crisis really in that order. And yes, definitely not be sidetracked. All right, Fred, you heard what the Juliana had to say in terms of what the GOP would need to focus on, stay on track. What about the Democrats? Absolutely. I think the Democrats need to make it about the voting record of the Republicans over the last few years. Republicans have consistently voted against things that would make life for everyday citizens uh, better, and um, including even including Medicaid expansion, including uh, support for for the victims of um, of the recent hurricane. Uh, and just uh, voting against the Build Back Better, voting against the infrastructure bill, all these basic things that, you know, in years prior or in decades prior would have been sort of uh, easy. Yes, we all agree that we need to improve America's infrastructure. We all need we all agree we need to put food on the table and things like that. Republicans have consistently voted no against that. And I think Democrats absolutely need to focus in on uh, we're talking about the national level, the federal level. They need to look at and focus on the no votes, the number of no votes, and what those votes have meant to the lives of everyday Americans. So, and here in Georgia, we don't have a border crisis. Um, Here in Georgia, we don't have a lot of things that are national, that people are talking about at a national level. But what we do have- You don't think think so with with abortion and and voting rights and and all of that? Well- well, the things that Julianne just mentioned, like uh, when you're talking about uh, the, when you talk about the border crisis, immigration reform, things of that nature, those are not issues that are impacting Georgia. But to your point, yes, reproductive health is a major issue across the country, and we've seen a serious backlash against uh, against the Supreme Court and against uh, places that have tried to lock down and prevent choice. And even in today's poll that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. 61% of Georgians said that they are opposed to uh to the dodds decision and to the heartbeat bill so we do have a lot of issues here in georgia but i think it comes and that's exactly the point that democrats need to focus on the positions that republicans have taken that have impacted the day-to-day life not the theoretical opportunities that we may or may not have well julia i want to go back to you for a moment because earlier in the year it was viewed that the republicans it was a sure in given typically that the current president's party doesn't do so well when the president is struggling in the polls and, and President Biden had been struggling. I mean, his his approval rating was very, very low. Uh, some analysts say that is now shifting and that due to the passing of the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act might have helped Biden's administration, those numbers. You think that's that'll be enough also to sway some voters that perhaps the Biden administration isn't so bad as we thought early in the year? Well, those numbers are not shifting at a high rate. Uh, first, let's let's look at those numbers. Of course, we have the AJC poll. We also have a CNN poll that was re- released this morning, as well as a political morning consult poll. If you look at the CNN poll that was released this morning, it had Biden at 44% general approval rating, which is up from 38%. Mm-hmm. Like I said, 
overall uh, overall increase. But when it comes to specifics in that poll, he's at 36% on the economy, up from 30%, mm-hmm. 32% on the on inflation, up from 24%. So those are not exactly a you know, soaring approval ratings. In fact, they're very low. And here's the interesting part uh, when you're looking at the political morning consult poll. His numbers rose four points among Democrats. They stayed the same among Republicans. But in this poll, his approval ratings went down from 33% to 29% among independent voters who do not necessarily identify as Republicans or Democrats. And those are the people that are going to be deciding elections and in these key states where the Senate hangs in the balance. So I think that that's a very important thing to look at is the fact that his approval ratings actually went down among independent voters. So um, I feel very confident that Republicans are going to take the House. Um, I do believe in the end we're going to take the Senate, but the Senate is still very much in play. Well, Fred, you are a numbers guy. You love to look at poll numbers and all that stuff. So you heard what Julianne said, and she pretty much laid out, of course, this is a CNN poll, your response to that. Yeah, so first of all, uh, I do agree that the falling numbers are Biden's numbers with independents. That is a real problem for for Democrats. Um, I always say, and we said a million times on this show, that elections, particularly in Georgia, are won along the edges. It's a matter of inches, not miles, or you know, feet, not miles, and inches, not yards. And so when we look at something like this, uh, those numbers with independence, that is a problem. But the fact that the president is held steady with Republicans is a huge win and that he has increased even a little bit uh, with Democrats is also a positive thing. So when we put this in the context of the AJC poll today, um, we know that polls are, are, are reflective of the moment. And if the electorate looks like that particular poll, then that poll is generally going to be correct. Mm-hmm. So with this particular poll in the AJC today, so it's 50% Republican, 43% Democrat. And so with uh, Biden's numbers, the president's numbers are increasing with Democrats. That means that enthusiasm with the Democratic voters will probably uh, increase also. So that if the electorate looks in Georgia, which is really important and when we talk about the overall picture of the, of the country with respect to the Senate, in today's AJC poll, Senator Warnock was at 46 percent, Harris Walker's at 44 percent, mm-hmm. but that was with an oversampling of Republicans. So breaking that down, what that means is that if the electorate looks like it did in 2018 or in 2020, where it was basically 50-50, then Senator Warnock wins, and it's actually Stacey Abrams in the governor's race that goes into a runoff, not the Senate race. And so that's significant. Um, and so that while the president's number is falling with amongst independents is important. What's most important for Democrats is that his numbers are increasing with Democrats. But is that enough? Because then based on this AJC poll, and I'm going to ask both, both of you this, Fred, I'll stick with you. Is that an, by your math, and you, you got some interesting mathematics there going up, Fred, I got to tell you, but by that <laughs> by that same explanation, you look at the, the lead that Governor Kemp has over Stacey Abrams, that 51 to 40, to 41 percent is there some happiness in there for the abrams camp based on what you said because it would be no well no no no. so again this sample the poll today that was released today is that has means that 50 50 percent of the people who responded self-identify as republicans and 43 percent identify as democrats okay and seven percent somewhere in between but we know from 2018 and 2020, Georgia was basically 50-50. The governor had 51.5%, Stacey Abrams 48.5%, and 2018, we know that 
uh, for President Biden had about one Georgia by about 13,000 votes uh, or 14,000 votes in 2020. And then, of course, we know that Senator Warnock won by almost 100,000 in 20, January 2021. And so what that means is that Georgia is basically a 50-50 state. So in this poll, to your question, in this poll, when you have so many more of the respondents are Republicans and the governor's only at 51 percent, while, yes, it's good to be at 51 percent, if I am on the governor's team, I'm saying, and, and I believe this poll, I'm like, hey, we have some more work to do because the governor should be at about 52, 53 percent in this poll as opposed to 51. And so if you're... Senator Warnock and Ursula Walker, you're like, okay, listen, if you're Senator Warnock, we're two points ahead with 7% more respondents being Republicans than Democrats. That's a good thing for Senator Warnock, and that's a troubling sign for the governor. And that doesn't mean that that's not reflective okay. of the quality of the campaigns, but it's just that, again, if the, if, the poll, if the electorate looks like this poll, then Governor Kemp wins and Senator Warnock is in a runoff. But if it looks like if the electorate looks like it has, based on these numbers, if it looks like it has the last two general elections, Senator Warnock wins with about 51 and a half, 52 percent, and the governor will fall just short of the 50 percent okay. mark. That doesn't mean that Stacey Abrams wins. OK, let me let me let me stop you there. Let me stop you there because I want to give Juliana a, an, an opportunity to respond to that. Are you buying Fred's fancy math there? I love Fred. He he's wonderful, and he is the eternal optimist, and I appreciate that about him. <laughs> <laughs> it's the number. It's the data. The numbers don't lie. Oh, but Fred, now I got to be fair. We've had we've had spirited debates about you and your numbers. I believe the not my numbers, not my numbers, <laughs> but other people's numbers. Go ahead, Julian. Go ahead, Julian. <laughs> so if numbers don't lie, then I think that that Governor Kemp should be pretty happy with fifty one percent over Stacey Abrams at forty. Uh, just under 41%. Um, I, I do agree that the Senate race in Georgia is up for grabs. Of course, you have, if you're looking at the at the poll from the AJC, you have Warnock up by three points over Walker. However, there's a three-point margin of error. So this is still very, very tight. Um, we don't know how that's going to go. And we also don't know, does this mean um, by the by, the polling numbers, does this mean that there are swing voters and possibly even some people that have voted Republican in the past that are uh, leaning toward Warnock? We don't know that right now. But the numbers for, I, I believe the numbers for the governor are going to hold strong. I think that he is going to be reelected with no problem whatsoever. As far as the Senate is concerned, that still hangs in the balance. Well, let's talk about that. John, let me, let me hang. Hold on, Fred, because I want to get this in there because you, you've been talking a lot. Let's be fair about this. Uh, but hold on, because Julian, the, 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 the Walker camp, depending on whom you ask, is in a little bit of trouble, a lot of trouble, or he's done. That's what I've read. And I'm I'm curious about one particular voting block, and those are the evangelical voters. This issue with Herschel Walker and whether or not he knew about uh, an abortion or an alleged abortion that, that happened with the next girlfriend, is that a factor, particularly for evangelical voters? I, you know, I, it's really hard to say what is going to be in the mind of each individual evangelical voter, but I can tell you that among evangelicals I talk to, they're more concerned about the fact that they know that Senator Warnock will vote in favor of even late-term abortion, whereas they know that a possible Senator Walker would vote against it. So I, I believe that is how they are going to approach this election. 
Well, let me ask you this, because also with evangelical voters and, and those who who say that, you know, this is important to them, the moral compass of a candidate. This seems to be sort of a, a different viewpoint just because Walker is a Republican. But they hold true to course about how they feel about abortions. Can you understand wow. someone saying that's they they kind of they seem conflicted by that? But a choice for, for evangelical voters? Well, first of all, I think they're taking into consideration the fact that Senator Walker has denied that this ever occurred. So I think they're taking that into consideration and not just automatically believing um, his political opponent. Um, so there is there is that. But there is also the fact that they are looking at things you know, he is the Republican candidate. And so they're looking at things pragmatically as to how people are going to vote if they're elected. And they know how Senator Warnock feels when it comes to the abortion issue. And they know how a probable Senator Walker would vote on that issue. Right. So, Fred, is Fred, what do you think? You, you're, you're, you have worked so, on campaigns. Yeah. So uh, a few thoughts. Um, one you know, it, it is interesting that there there are a block of voters who, for whom faith and abortion um, and things of that nature are very important, yet they are willing to look the other way when it comes to Herschel Walker. Someone said it last week that they don't care. All they care about is control of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, um, that's interesting. I don't think that that is, I agree with Julianne, that each individual or each, each sub block of evangelicals, and when we talk about white evangelicals, we're talking about white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. So I think black evangelicals are very different, have a very different position with this, at least with everything that I've heard. So if you're the Walker camp, and one of the other things I say all the time, Rose, is that, Julianne, is that this is not about, if you're in the Walker camp, this is not about getting people to flip from Herschel Walker to Senator Warnock. What you want, if you're in the Warnock camp, is for voters to stay at home. And so if voters look at this and say, gosh, you know what, I, I just can't support this. I'm not going to vote Democrat, but I can't support this. Then that's a win for Senator Warnock. And I think that's why you see the Republicans coming back this week, uh, bringing out uh, the audio from Senator Warnock's ex-wife and trying to muddy the waters with that. And so uh, I, and where Julianne and I disagree, this isn't about believing what Walker's opponent says. Senator Warnock has actually been pretty mum on this. He just said that Herschel Walker has a problem with the truth. This is about believing the woman and her receipts, and her card, and believing Herschel Walker's son. Mm -hmm. This is not about believing Senator Warnock. And I was very clear and, and set the record straight. Republicans, and I'm not attacking Julianne personally, but Republicans and Herschel Walker is taking this tack of trying to pin this on, Hersh on Senator Warnock. As Senator Warnock, I think, smartly has just stayed clear of it. And these are, these are all self-inflicted wounds from, from Herschel Walker. This is not the Democrats doing this. Um, and so that, that's an important point there. And I think, lastly, Again, for for this race, um, I, I want our listeners to remember that Georgia is a piece of a larger puzzle. Mm -hmm. And that puzzle is, again, of course, control of the Senate. And you only have a handful of states that are considered in play, Arizona, um, New Mexico, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And so for people who wonder why Republicans, national Republicans are doubling down on Herschel Walker, despite all of these things, it's that, well, you know, Arizona looks to be out of play for Republicans. Pennsylvania appears to be out of play for Republicans. And so uh, control of the Senate looks like it's going to come down to Nevada and Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're pulling 
uh, doubling down and, and marshaling the resources because, again, it is about control of the Senate. Now, if if Pennsylvania was in a different position and other places were in a different position, then you might see Republicans kind of leaving Herschel Walker alone. But they're not in a position to do that because they're trying to get to that, at least hold 50-50, but trying to get to 51 so they can take control of the Senate. Let me ask you this, both of you, and I, I love to ask this question as always, our last question, is there, who then, I guess a better way to start this, who is that undecided voting block that could blow this whole thing <laughs> up in terms of what you all have just said today? Is it women? Is it white suburban women? Is it black men? Is it just simply the undecided? Fred, you go first, and Juliana. Yeah, I'm going to still say that I think black men determine the outcome of this election. Again, for Democrats, if they can get the electorate to look like it did in 2018 or 2020, Herschel Walker wins, and by the narrowest of margins, and again, I'm not saying that Governor Kemp is going to lose at all at any point, but by the narrowest of margins, that race goes into a runoff if it's 50-50. So for Democrats, and particularly if you're Senator Warnock, if you can mobilize black men, when every poll shows this, that there's a lack of enthusiasm for Stacey Abrams and for for Democrats overall with black men. If you can mobilize this black black men, which you're talking about two, three hundred thousand votes there, then you can make the electorate look like it did in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty. Hold on when hold on to Senate Warnock's seat. Okay. Hold on to the Senate and then play for a runoff. And Juliana, I'll give you the last word on that. I believe it's going to come down to the independent voters. I believe it's going to come down to those people who are undecided. Um, There's no doubt about the fact that across party lines and especially among independents, the economy is the most important issue Mm -hmm. in this in, in the state and in the nation. And when it comes to the polling numbers of Democrats and most especially the president, they are losing on those issues. And so I believe if the Republicans hold on to focusing on the economy, then we win. Listener says y'all need to be on TV. No, they don't, because then they'll leave me. Julianne Thompson, Republican <laughs> strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies, Fred Hicks, and then a base political strategist and demographer. Thank you both, as always, for taking the time. Good conversation. Of course, we're going to check back in with you all right before we get up to November 8th. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rozelle, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Coming out of Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.